0: You miss everything, everything about being home, the fresh air, your
1: family, certain events, you want to be home. Khalif Browder, it's one of the names in the roll call of black lives taken by the criminal justice system. He was arrested in New York City at age 16 because someone accused him of stealing a backpack. A backpack. One witness, and he spent three years at Rikers waiting for a trial because he couldn't pay his bail and he refused to take a plea. Both inmates and guards abused Khalifa Rikers. He spent nearly two years in solitary.
0: And in solitary confinement, they control your food and when it's time for feeding. So if you say anything that could tick them off in any type of way, a lot of them, they they won't feed you. And it's already hard in there because if you get the three trays that you get every day, you're still hungry. If they starve in one tray, that could really make an impact.
1: We don't now lack for evidence that this is horrific. Duane Betts is the poet and lawyer who's been with me throughout this podcast. He says solitary confinement is so dangerous for young people like Khalif that the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatrists recommends any kid held for more than 24 hours should get immediate evaluation. It's so bad that the UN expert
0: on torture has called for absolute prohibition of solitary confinement.
1: I mean, practice is just basically considered around the world, inhumane, cruel, and degrading. Khalif Browder tried to kill himself several times while in solitary. Guards responded by beating him. He did finally get out of Rikers. The prosecutor dropped the case because they lost touch with the single witness. But Khalif, he never left solitary behind. Khalif Browder killed himself on Saturday.
0: Browder spent three years in jail on New York City's Rikers Island, much of it in solitary confinement. All that time, he was awaiting trial,
1: a trial that never took place. I'm Kai Wright. This is Caught. The kid who really got us started reporting this series has landed at Rikers, too. Z is the 17-year-old who we last heard from right after he'd been rearrested. We're going to return to his story later in this episode. But first... We're going to focus on this one extreme form of punishing kids. In recent years, reform advocates have made a lot of progress in curtailing the use of solitary. President Obama banned it for juveniles in federal prisons. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio banned it for anyone under 21 years old at Rikers. And following a lawsuit, New York State banned extreme forms of solitary for juveniles in prisons. But As with anything, there's often a gap between the rules at the top and the reality inside the system. So we wanted to find out what kids like Khalif Browder face around New York State now, when they're being held for trial. We partnered with the Marshall Project to investigate that, and WNYC producer
2: Courtney Stein was part of the team. So Courtney, how's it look? Is the ban New York State put in place working? You know, that ban only keeps teenagers in New York State prisons out of 23-hour solitary confinement. There's a loophole for kids that are in county jails. If a kid like Khalif Browder is being held in a county jail besides Rikers, they can be put in solitary. And being in jail means, for the most part, they haven't yet had a trial, they haven't pled guilty or been convicted of a crime, and it means they're probably being locked up with adults. So I took a trip upstate to check out one of these jails in Onondaga County. This place has been rated amongst the worst jails in New York. I came here to meet a young woman we're gonna call Amani. I was led back through a series of locking gates to a small classroom. A few minutes later, a corrections officer brought her in. They had her in an adult-sized jumpsuit, but she looks like she could be in middle school. So this is the recorder's microphone. Okay. I'm gonna have it kind of close so I can get good sound, so it's gonna be almost like this. Okay. Okay, we'll let you guys do your thing. The two corrections officers left the okay, room. I'm very surprised that we're sitting alone with you. For real. But a wall of windows faced the hallway, so they were there watching us as we talked. Can you tell me what it's like growing up here? For Yeah. <laughs> this your first
3: time? hmm I don't know, but up at it just was not
2: good. Amani's the baby in her family, the youngest of three kids. Like, she talks you know, to her grandma on the phone like, every day. And until she got locked up, up, she helped take care of her nieces and nephews. What happened the the day that you first got arrested?
3: The day I first got arrested.
2: You woke up at home.
3: I woke up, I got in the shower, I got dressed. My hair was already done, so I didn't have to do it. Then me and my friends, we went to the store. It was a man in the store. He had long hair. He seen us and he kept looking, so I'm just looking too.
2: Getting watched when she's shopping isn't new to her. Amani's had to get used to it growing up in upstate New York. She's young and black in a place where African Americans make up only 12% of the population. But 72% of the juveniles held in the county jail are black. So when Amani and her friends were in the dollar store and the long-haired guy was following them around, she says,
3: He grabbed my friend so I pushed him. So then we end up leaving out the store. He followed us. We was finna run, but I said we don't have to run because we didn't do nothing. So the police car stopped, The one officer got out. So he like, um, did y'all just leave the store? So I'm like, yeah, because I didn't think we was over arrested because we didn't do nothing. So I'm like, yeah, I told him, yeah. They just told me to put my hands in my back and cuffed me.
2: Unlike a lot of teenagers, when Imani was accused of shoplifting, the store didn't call her parents to come get her. Instead, she was arrested by five police officers and brought to the county jail. It's called the Justice Center. She was 16 when she was arrested, and in New York, that means she's considered an adult. And that's why she got locked up in an adult jail. Her bail was set at $500, but she wasn't able to pay it.
3: I never actually thought about being arrested going to the Justice Center. I just, my first impression was, what did I get myself into?
2: Amani knows about this place. She told me her stepsister, Chunice, died at the Justice Center in 2009. She was 21 years old and pregnant and having painful complications. Chunice cried in pain all night, but was ignored. She died in her cell.
3: The lady put me in a, um, in a single cell. It was little. It was disgusting. It was dirty.
2: A few days later, one of the corrections officers said she was making too much noise with another inmate, so he locked her in her cell.
3: So I... Wrote a grievance on him. And when the sergeant came, I gave it to the sergeant. The sergeant asked me, do you want to play this game? Who you think going to win, me or you?
2: She was moved to the isolation unit, or the box.
3: So I handed him the grievance. He told us back our stuff. I ended up flooding my cell, and they put me in the box.
2: So what does it mean to be in the box there?
3: When I was in the box, I was in it for 45 days, somewhere around here. You walk in, the sink and the toilet is connected. The bed is on the floor, no TV, no phones, nothing. I had no contact with the outside world whatsoever. Couldn't make no phone calls, couldn't see nobody, couldn't contact nobody, couldn't talk, nothing. You in your cell. You just sit there and wait till the next day to call.
2: Amani was locked in her cell for 23 hours a day, and sometimes 24. Even though she was a high school student, she was denied education of any kind. And that one hour outside her cell was in a filthy, empty cage so she could have recreation by herself.
3: I'm always cold. The blanket is thin.
2: One of the reasons the Justice Center earned its spot among New York's worst jails is that when inmates file grievances, many are just ignored.
3: I don't know. It made me feel like nothing. Like an animal. You wake up, they give you your trade through your slot. That's it.
2: The jail offered no mental health services to kids in solitary. While she was there, Amani wrote a letter to her mom saying she didn't want to live anymore.
3: They come and put you in the shower. If it's your day to shower. The shower is open. It's no, no nothing. Just an open shower. And they see you. They be staring sometimes. Like one day I was in the shower. The man came and he said, you done? I said, no. He said, well, hurry up. And he's standing there. Then I got out. He was staring at me. I put a towel over me. He still was looking at me. And I'm like... Right agreements. Nothing
4: happened. 95% of the kids who were there for 60 days were getting locked in, the solitary confinement at some point. I mean, this is really striking.
2: Josh Cotter is an attorney for Legal Services of Central New York. He says that corrections officers called Imani horrible names all the time.
4: You know, call a 16-year-old girl a little bitch or a little slut when you're a, a grown man. is, I mean, it's reprehensible. But that, that kind of attitude that they would have would really have an effect on the kids, because if the kids are getting disrespected, it makes it harder for them to give the respect back.
2: Cotter started investigating how juveniles were being treated at the Justice Center. A correctional expert found that the solitary confinement unit there was one of the worst he'd ever seen. So Cotter and the New York Civil Liberties Union sued. The lawsuit was settled last summer. And now the jail can no longer hold kids in 23-hour isolation. But for kids like Amani, the damage is already done. She was held there for four months.
3: When I got out, it was like, I don't know, I really couldn't sleep because... It have an effect on you when you be in the box for so long. Then you get out, you still feel like an animal sometimes.
2: When I visited Amani, she was back in jail. Once again, she had been followed when she was shopping. This time at the mall, she got upset and walked out of the store, but she was still holding an item of clothing. Amani wanted to make a point, so she sat down on a bench outside the store and just waited. We wanted to know how many other kids are still being held in solitary. The lawsuit brought against the jail where Amani was held only covers that one county. And in New York State, there are 61 more. And each one of those counties has their own rules about how they treat teenagers in their jails. I asked the New York Civil Liberties Union how many of these jails are using solitary confinement with kids. And they told me that no one really knows for sure. That's because tracking the precise number of kids that are subjected to solitary isn't possible. And not just in New York, but nationwide. States don't publish that data. And it turns out in New York, they weren't even collecting it. Basically, there's this information black hole. So we decided to partner with an investigative reporter named Taylor Eldridge at the Marshall Project. We wanted to find out where kids are being subjected to this.
5: Yeah, so we called every county in the state, so that's 62 counties. We called sheriffs, jail administrators, wardens, public defenders, advocates, anyone we could find, really, who would know how teenagers are handled in the jail.
2: We heard back from 34 counties, and of those, 29 of them said that they use solitary for teenagers. That's most of the counties that responded, and almost half of the counties in New York State. Josh Cotter, the attorney that brought the case against the Justice Center, filed a class action suit in July against another upstate county jail over its use of solitary.
5: Yeah, so people are paying attention to this. There was a rule change that was proposed by the state commission that oversees county jails, but it really only changes the amount of paperwork that jails have to do.
2: Which means that now, local jails will have to document when they put kids in solitary. But it doesn't mean they can't do it. All a jail has to do is say that a kid is a threat to the good working order of the facility, and solitary is approved. To read the full investigation, go to themarshallproject.org.
1: I'm back with Duane, who actually has some very personal experience with solitary confinement. So, Duane, I know from reading your memoir that throughout your nine years in prison, you went in and out of solitary regularly. Yeah, but when you say that, it makes it
0: seem like I was doing something. <laughs> and it's, like, and it's like, it's funny because like I, if I tell somebody now, you know, I was in solitary confinement at least six times. And each time was for some charge, but all of those charges were trumped up. None of those charges actually reflected me being a danger to the institutional community.
1: Like what? What's an example?
0: Uh, well, once uh, I was being told to move from one cell to another and I didn't want to. And then the guard was like, look, if you don't move, you're going to the hole. And so I touched his arm to say, look, OK, I'll move. And I touched his arm and he said that was assault. And he slammed me against the wall, put me in handcuffs, and basically dragged me down the steps and threw me in a hole. And I got 10 days in the hole for that. I, just, I literally just touched his arm and I was 16 years old. I hadn't learned not to talk with my hands.
1: But ironically, it was while you were in the hole that you found... Something that would be a big part of your future, right? Yeah,
0: I mean, you know, I, I found, I discovered poetry in solitary confinement. I mean, you have to, you have to imagine a parallel row of cells with, with a first floor and a second floor, and no library. And every man in these cells understands how horrific it is to be inside this cell. And the only thing that we could do for each other, really, was to make sure that we shared what we had in terms of things to stimulate our minds. And so you could go to the door and just say, somebody sent me a book. And a stranger would slide a book under your cell. It would come like, you know, like a gift from, from the heavens or something. Mm. And, uh, and one day I get Dudley Randall's, the black Poets. Didn't ask for it. Don't know who gave it to me. At the time, I had no real interest in poetry. I discovered Robert Hayden. I discovered Etheridge Knight. And, you know, Etheridge Knight had their time in prison. And started writing poetry and I came home and became a poet, and I'm reading his biography while I'm in this solitary confinement cell, and I'm thinking that like this could be me. And so I just sort of made a decision. And so from that day forth, I told myself that I was a poet, had one of those ink pens that was just long as your index finger, (laughs) made of plastic. I would take that ink pen, and because I couldn't really afford writing tablets, right? I would write on the back of request forms. And I would rip them in half, and I imagined myself creating a kind of book. And over the course of, like, 18 months, I literally wrote thousands of poems. They were the worst thing that's ever been written in the <laughs> history of the English language. But I, I still have them to this day. I remember ripping a sheet and, and, and using a sheet to create thread to bind these pages together, imagining that I was creating a book that I had written and that I would, you know, be able to share with people. And so for me, you know... I think about it now and when I tell the story I think that it is so much wasted potential but even more than wasted potential like we waste the ability to provide people with opportunities uh, and, and, and that's the thing that's
1: for me is, is sort of most tragic coming up we get back to Z's story we left him way back in episode 2 as he was headed back into the system that's next Okay, so remember Z? He was the kid that struggled to keep his temper in check.
4: Every day I wake up, every time I go to sleep, I think about being locked up. I be having dreams. Yeah, what happens in the dreams? I just picture myself being remanded. I'm, they putting those tight handcuffs on me and bring me to the back room and lock me in the cell.
1: And I'm doing time. And then he did get arrested. He told WNYC reporter Jared Marcel that it was the stupidest thing he'd ever done.
6: When Z got rearrested, he'd been out for seven months. Things were a bit bumpy at first. But since then, he stopped smoking weed, he landed a summer internship at a law firm, and he had a big rap competition coming up. to
0: the gang, his money, we busting these things
6: on a black the bank. That's all I all you got? What you mean? That's all I I just started writing yesterday. I thought it was like 2 in the morning. I was tired. Z felt vindicated. To him, these improvements showed that it wasn't him who was the issue. It was his environment. When I was locked up, I was going through a lot of stuff.
4: They thought I was just some crazy person turning up for no reason. But I was just so stressed out from not being able to go home, from the food you eat, that I was, like, really turning up.
6: And you got that corrected now? Yeah, I got that corrected. I'm out of society now, you don't see me committing any more crimes. Finally, he could move on with his life. He was hanging out with friends and talking to girls. Z calls himself a ladies' man, so naturally, when he met a girl on Facebook, he wanted to meet up with her. Z was at home with his mom that night.
5: Little girl started calling him. She decided she's going to jump in a cab from, she lives in the Bronx, and take the
6: cab to my house. They live deep in Queens, so that's not cheap. At the very least, 50 bucks. But like a lot of teenagers, they didn't plan very well.
5: She had called him downstairs and he came back upstairs and told me that mommy, she don't have any money. She was trying to hop out and the cab driver locked her in. And I just looked at him because I didn't have any money to pay for a cab. I guess he thought he was gonna get the girl out the cab. That was his focus. And he got downstairs and gave the cab driver the little bit of money that he had left from what I gave him the night before. And it wasn't enough, so the cab driver took his money and kept the girl and tried to pull off.
6: So without thinking twice, Z put his hand inside his sweatshirt and pretended he had a gun. The girl got out the car, and the driver left.
5: He's paying the consequences of that now, because even though he didn't have a gun, from just that little thing that he did, him acting like he had a gun, now he's doing One and a third to four.
6: And it seemed like he thought he was doing the right thing at the moment. he was trying to save the girl.
5: Like, any problem that we ever had is him not being aware of what could happen after.
6: The cab driver reported the incident. Two weeks later, the police showed up at Z's apartment and arrested him. They searched his place and didn't find a gun. Before this incident took place, he was this close to getting his felony record sealed. Z had what's called youthful offender status. This means your criminal record can be erased if you demonstrate good behavior. So all he had to do was stay out of trouble for a couple more weeks, and he would have been in the clear. But now, he's got another armed robbery charge tagged on top of that. The fact that Z says he didn't actually have a gun doesn't matter. Simply pretending is enough. Now Z's locked up on Rikers Island again, where his identity is nothing more than an inmate ID number. So I'm gonna visit him at Rikers Island. He's been in now for the past uh, two or three weeks. I'd never been to Rikers before. So the bus is full, of people trying to see their family. As the bus drives us over the bridge onto the island, all you can see is a massive parking lot filled with cars. Rikers isn't just one jail. It's like a separate city full of prisoners. All DLC employees, uniform and non uniform staff, step well, up with you. your diesel, Police first. Corrections officers boarded the bus. It felt like at that moment we all became inmates. After going through several checkpoints, a giant corrections school bus pulled up to drive us to the different jails. The officer driving the bus, the only white guy, was blasting some country song about breaking all the rules. I finally made it to Z's jail, the juvenile unit. We were placed in a small room with thick glass walls so the guards could watch us. Z was wearing a green jumpsuit that signified he was in the isolation unit. He had a smile on his face, which was nice to see, considering his situation. After the warm greeting, it was just like... This is where we are now. The last time I saw you, we were in the park talking about your new school. He regretted how things played out. I was this close, he said. That's the stupidest thing I ever did. When the guards came back for Z, I gave them a piece of paper with my phone number on it so he could call me. They told me they'd give it to him. They never did. Just left, uh, well, he got emotional, and it was very difficult to see him in such a uh vulnerable state of mind and you know I tried to stay as positive as I can and give him advice on how to deal with it but ultimately I've never been to jail before I've never I've never wore handcuffs I don't know when I, I was I was like claustrophobic like it was, it was it was I couldn't wait to get out of there you know but guess what he's still in there and uh it's not looking like he's getting out anytime soon. Another month passes before I see Z again. This time in court, his lawyer got him a deal. For pleading guilty and serving a minimum of 20 months, he'll be eligible for youthful offender status again. So it's still possible he could leave with a clean record. I wrote him a letter, hoping that would work to get him my phone number. Then one day he called.
4: Hello? Yeah. You you say that again. I said, I said, I've been better. I said, what you doing?
6: Man, you know, just working, man, you know. What do you mean you've been better? Tell me what's going on.
4: I got into an argument with my mom's earlier. She told me that commissary is a reward.
6: In jail, commissary is everything. It's like an account where inmates can get money sent to them. Then they can buy things they need, like snacks, deodorant, toothpaste, or things to pass the time, like a radio. But when you get in trouble, like Z has been, they could find you. And that money comes out of your account.
4: She told me that you shouldn't get rewarded. You should be getting punished for doing something bad. And that just blew my whole day. I I, I hung up on her. I said I ain't ever talking to her again. You're
6: never talking to her again?
4: Yeah, for the rest of my
6: bed. Come on, man. Kia couldn't afford to keep re-upping his account every time he got in trouble. I know you're frustrated. I know you are, man. I
4: know you're not happy in there, man. I just want you to keep your head up and Try to stay positive. I know it's tough. I know the food there is bad. It's starting to get a little bit tight. I'm about to start going, getting back in trouble and stuff. There's no reason to fake be good. And like, but why would you, why would you start getting in trouble again? I don't understand. Like, just to go back to isolation again, because like when I'm in like GP, general population, like I'm not getting the stuff I need, like like com sorry and all that type of stuff. Everybody got their stuff, and I'm just like, damn, like, where the fuck my shit at?
6: Things have once again closed in for Z. Now at 17, going on 18, his ambitions of being a normal teenager, rapper, and high school grad are now reduced to commissary. Z decides that if he isn't going to have it, he doesn't want to be around other people that do. So he chooses to get in trouble, so he'll be sent to isolation. At Rikers, that's a separate unit. Where juveniles don't get access to commissary.
4: So how how is isolation how's is isolation better? It's not, but I'm just gonna be by myself. I don't got temptations and stuff. The what, like less people mess with you when you're in isolation or no, I don't got temptations like when they eat and shit surround them. <laughs> <laughs> stuff. I ain't got nothing. It's bad enough I'm in here. Shit. I need something to make my time go by, like I don't know. This is crazy. Like, people don't know what really go on in here.
6: Z scheduled to be transferred to prison on his 18th birthday.
4: All right, do you know where you're going? Upstate in a couple of days, and I'm not gonna have no. I can't call nobody when I get there, unless that one free call. That's it. I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry to hear that, man. That's that's unfortunate. All right, man. All right. Take care. All right. See you. Bye.
6: He seemed different on this call. He wasn't that kid trying to be good, joking around. He transitioned back into what he was trying to get out of. And now he's just figuring out how to survive. I went upstate with his mom to go visit him. She told me about why he got sent there.
5: I sent him a package with a whole bunch of things that he liked.
6: His mom isn't always able to give. So when she does, it means a lot. Because he doesn't know when he'll be able to get again.
5: I wanted him to be normal and feel like, you know, he was he was home and he can eat and drink and stuff. So I went and I racked up on everything that he loves and put it in a box and sent it. And I guess some uh, inmate was trying to take stuff out of his box. And that turned into an argument. They ended up fighting and then the CEOs came.
6: Z lost control.
5: Ended up fighting the CEOs, and then that was all that
6: she wrote. She says it was serious enough to get him sent away to a maximum security prison. He turned 18 in 23-hour-a-day solitary confinement, and then spent the next three months there. How's that for a happy birthday?
5: Z is in Kasaki Correctional Facility. And he's just coming out of shoe.
6: That's the solitary confinement unit.
5: Been out of shoe for about maybe three days. So now he's in general population and just waiting to see how that's gonna be. I believe he has no idea where he is, how far he is away from home.
6: Yes, so we're in the middle of nowhere and very far from New York City.
5: I just don't know what to expect, like when I get there. So all I could do is just just wait and see. He should be coming out with all smiles. <laughs> this is it.
6: This is it. Yeah, I won't take a picture.
5: It looks like a maybe campground.
6: Until you see the barbed wire fence. <laughs> and you remember, you're at a correctional facility. Maximum security, right? Mm
5: Mm-hmm. Yes, it actually looks just like on TV.
6: I'm literally afraid to get out of this car right now. (laughs) I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm gonna check my pockets and make sure I don't have any contraband because uh, I would like to go home tonight. Okay, Jared Marcel signing out. We wanted to record the visit. Come on up. But they wouldn't let us. Surprise, surprise. About an hour later... All right, let's talk through this smoke break. We started our three-hour journey back home. How did that go?
5: It was intense.
6: I was afraid that my son is going to get in trouble. The visiting room is in a cafeteria lined with vending machines. I was a little worried about it. Z came out with a green jumpsuit on, like when he was at Rikers. Except he was heavier and his hair was grown out. Z got right to business. After being in solitary for so long, he was eager to have access to commissary. He had called his mom and made specific requests. She was able to meet some of them. She brought soap, toothpaste, and sneakers. Describe the uh, the energy when he first came in the, the room.
5: He was anxious, because he wanted to know if I, I got everything he said and I'm just, you know, like all people, I'm going through it. So it's a little hard for me at this time, but I did the best I can. I mean, came with sneakers.
6: When he got out of isolation, he borrowed things from other inmates, and now he owed some people.
5: I think he was promising people stuff that he didn't know whether he was gonna get, and that could cause problems.
6: Z had asked his mom to bring some black and mild cigars, But that's where she drew the line. When Kia told him that, Z became stone cold. He explained that he needed to repay what he borrowed or there'd be consequences. This was the second week in a row he was supposed to pay up and he didn't have it. He made it clear that as soon as he left us and went back to population, somebody was going to try to hurt him. And he said he wasn't going to let that happen.
5: Okay, I actually felt like his disability was there today. Like, I can see when he start talking, you know, a little crazy. Talking about turning up.
6: And Kia doesn't know if he has the ability to hold himself back. She brought some cash to put in his account, but there was no way the money would clear in time.
5: I can't explain what it is, but I can feel things. Anytime he's in a situation, anytime he's in trouble, I can feel him. I actually think the worst right now. And that's why I'm trying to get
6: him the payback, these people. So what was supposed to be a warm visit between mother and son became a tense moment over his safety. I had an idea that Z gave up his new sneakers as payment. Kia spent the little she has to get him those shoes. And they were the only thing he really has to call his own there. So it was a tough decision. That
5: was a good idea giving up his sneakers. I don't know if he's
6: gonna go through with it. He didn't want to, but ultimately agreed that was the best course of action. I hope he does. After getting that out the way, we got him a double cheeseburger from the vending machine and stuck it in the microwave. Immediately after finishing it, Z wanted another one. It was like a luxury to him. He washed it down with an orange soda and a honey bun for good measure. I remember you telling me, you know, you used to give him money when he was a kid and he was always entrepreneurial, you know, and he would sell the candy and stuff. In, a, in an ironic way, it seems like he's trying to continue that kind of thing here.
5: He learned, like he he stuck with everything I taught him and he's using it to survive. He's trying to find a way to hustle. And then, to get what he wants. But I think there's other things along with it too. I mean, if he start doing that, and, He's going to be known. I don't want him to be out there like that. That's when more problems come.
6: I've known Z for almost two years now, and a lot of his problems revolve around money and the fact that he doesn't always have it. Like with his latest armed robbery charge, he didn't have the money to pay for a cab. And that's what got him here. Some people might call him a failure because he ended up in prison, but Z believes the system ruined him, that he's been unfairly criminalized for mistakes that many teenagers make, mistakes that will follow him for the rest of his life. Or maybe the juvenile justice system just isn't nuanced enough to help someone like him. Z has his first parole hearing in a few weeks, but it seems very unlikely he'll get out. His mom told me he's back in solitary She doesn't know what happened. She can't communicate with him. And neither can I.
1: All of the kids we've introduced you to in this podcast remain, one way or another, caught in the system. They've shared their stories with us at a time when they are terribly vulnerable, and we thank them and their families for that. And having heard their stories, all I can conclude is that we owe them a lot more than this. That we have just got to start thinking in a far more radical way about how we stop punishing and start helping people who do harm to others or to themselves. So in the absence of a tidy conclusion, we asked Dwayne to end this for us on a poem. Here's what he chose.
0: All right, so for a in that this poem really comes out of my experience working as a public defender, in, in Connecticut at least, when a kid goes to court, to adult court, to circuit court, his mother has to stand up and appear before him. So the poem is written from that perspective, for a bail denied after Avi. I won't tell you how it ended, and his mother won't, either. But beside me she stood in something neither of us could know. And now... All is lost, lost is all in the ruins of what happened after. The kid, and we should call him kid, call him a fucking child. His face smooth and lacking history of a razor. Without promise of a mustache, he walked in a court of ghosts. And let's just call it a cauldron. Admit his nappy head made him blacker than whatever pistol he held, whatever casket awaited. The prosecutor's bald head was black or brown, but when has brown not been akin to black hair? To abyss and doesn't matter black lives if all the prosecutor said of black boys was that they kill the child beside his mother and his mother beside me and i am no one's father just the public defender fiddle-footed here where the state turns men women and children into numbers searching for phoenix's embers for angels born in the shadows of this breaking this boy beside me's wings withering Fool on the brink of life and broken. And it's all possible because one day or night or morning this woman and the man, the boy does not call daddy fucked and what would be called passion anywhere else, anywhere else called love. And the judge spoke and the kid kept confessing, I did it, I mean I did it, I mean Jesus. And everyone in the room wanted a flask. The boy's mother said, this is not justice you would not throw my son into that fucking ocean. She meant prison and we was too powerless to stop it. And we was too damn tired to be beautiful.
1: is a production of WNYC Studios and the Narrative Unit of WNYC News. This episode was reported by Jared Marcel and Courtney Stein. We partnered with Taylor Eldridge and Kirsten Dannis from The Marshall Project. David Jeans and Sophia Polizakar contributed to the solitary investigation. A couple of special thanks are in order for this whole podcast. Melinda Siri Wardana has been our project manager. And Dwayne Betts is our consultant. You should really read his book, A Question of Freedom, a memoir of learning, survival, and coming of age in prison. And we animated one of his poems. It's really cool. You should check it out at caughtpodcast.org. Casey Means is our technical director. Hannes Brown is our composer. And students Taja Graves-Parker, Alberto Lugo, and Sean Gary from Building Beats provided additional music. Rebecca Carroll and Jessica Miller were producers on the podcast. Kari Pitkin is our senior producer. Karen Froman is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is vice president of news for WNYC. And I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for listening. Caught is supported in part by the Anne Levy Fund, the Margaret Newbart Foundation, the John and Gwynne Smart Family Foundation, and the Economic Hardship Reporting Project.